Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Today, we're going to be talking about turning around troubled councils. More councils, it seems, are struggling than ever before. LGC research last year found that whereas in the past two years, eight councils have been subject to formal intervention or only narrowly avoided it, compared to five in their whole 12 years before that, Recently, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities advertised for inspectors and commissioners, suggesting they expect there to be more interventions to come. Joining me to discuss the issue today, I have Joanna Killian, Tony McArdle, Councillor Graham Chapman and Paul Frayner. Between them, they have a range of experiences supporting or in some cases operating in councils that have been struggling or face intervention. They're too many and varied for me to list, so I'm going to hand over to you all to introduce yourselves. Joanna, can I come to you first? Hello, I'm Joanna Killian. I am the Chief Exec of Surrey County Council and I have been in that role for five years and one day. And um, I joined Surrey at a very difficult time in its history, facing very, very stark financial pressures and uh, a range of failing services. I'm also a commissioner for Liverpool City Council and have been in that role for about 18 months. Thank you. Um, Tony. Good morning. Um, my name is Tony McArdle. I uh, was chief executive at Lincolnshire County Council and I went there uh, some years ago now at a time when it was in considerable difficulty with the leader having uh, just been jailed um, and with the executive resigning and management team all being sacked at the same time, which was a uh, an interesting experience which lasted for 12 years. Following that, I've been the lead commissioner at Northamptonshire County Council uh, and I currently chair the uh, improvement panel at the London Borough of Croydon. Thank you. Graham. Yes, I'm Graham Chapman. I'm former leader of Nottingham City. Um, I have worked the LGA over well, 15, 20 years now and I've been involved in probably five or six councils that have been in intervention either supporting leaders as mentors or even been involved in one of the um one of the teams that brought into uh, that recommended <coughs> intervention so i've seen and my own council's actually got a board at the moment so i've been i've seen it from several different angles yeah yeah nottingham has a one of these improvement boards in place yes, at the moment board, it? which is yeah. is it's a yeah. rest, not yeah. Not um, the full kind of commissioner-led yeah. intervention, but yes. um, the sort of yeah. step, step I'm, I'm currently a, quite a happy backbencher. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, and Paul. Hi, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Dada. Graham. Tony as well. My name is Paul Frayner and I'm a partner at TPX Impact and partner for local government. I spent 12 years in the sector myself, but in my current role in, in uh, TPX, we a lot of support with councils whether they're going through large-scale transformation or going through issues with governance and budgeting themselves we provide consultancy support all the way through really that process um, and I suppose we see quite a lot of the issues that 
before councils you know go into go into putting section 114s forward um and also have supported councils during that process on the back of that process as well councils like north Hants. it's nice to be here um thank you discussion i wonder if we could start come to you tony on this question of why are we seeing so many councils struggling at the moment and, and facing intervention what what you thought well i don't think there's there's a, a single answer to any of that there's, i think there's a range of things going on um, first of all we do live in more difficult times um financially and otherwise and while whilst i don't think it's the case that any of the current councils that currently face intervention are there because they don't have enough money to do um the the, the things that they want to do uh, to a as should we say at least a statutory um or legal um acceptable uh, level uh, it is the case that because there is less money around when things go wrong uh, you will get found out more quickly um, and i think if i look back to uh, many years ago in the days when the government for example used to put us all into league tables uh, there were always ones at the top and ones at the bottom i'm not advocating uh, that process uh, nor saying that it w worked even particularly well but there were councils that ran very well and that was well, well evidenced at the time and some that were run badly but you could run badly in those days, I think, and still get get by because when things went wrong, there was sufficient money in the system for you to be able to recover it. I think what's happening now is because significant failure puts you very quickly at immediate risk of of, of an of an existential risk, uh, a huge financial failure, it simply gets picked up more easily. One of the other things, of course, and I think it's an interesting angle that we want, we might want to explore is uh, having moved to uh, a system 20 years ago now where we have uh, an executive model. Um, of, of of governance, of course, it does tend to concentrate power in smaller in in a smaller uh, element of the authority, rather than. And I'm not again advocating going back to a committee system, but the committee system meant that it was much more difficult to hide things. And one of the characteristics of a lot of the councils that have got themselves into trouble is that small numbers of people, armed with uh, information, have been able to do things that the bulk of councillors have not. Yeah, interesting. Definitely something it'd be good to return to. Joanna, what what's your thoughts on on this question of you know, why are we seeing so so many councils struggling at the moment? I mean, for me, it's sort of two or three things. I mean, building on Tony's diagnostic in a way, I think many councils felt have felt under really significant pressure to increase income and indeed it's it was a sort of policy position taken that in the absence of predictable funding that councils should become more commercial and find alternative sources and in doing so um meet bigger ambitions so if a number of councils that are in intervention have let their sort of commercial um ambitions you know, run away. And I feel really strongly that um, although many councils are doing this well, you know, many have struggled to understand how actually to run a commercial portfolio, how to think about um, generating income in markets where actually the private sector has not wanted to operate. And it comes back, I think, to some really significant sort of capability issues that just don't exist in local government. And when you combine that with, I think, power held by a small number of people without the capabilities to deliver commercial ambition, then, you know, you see what you see. So, you know, many people have done this well, organisations have done this well. 
I think others haven't. And as the market has moved, you know, as COVID arrived, as inflation has hit, you know, commercial models needed to have been tested more robustly. I think, again, in the councils that uh, I work with and observe, I mean, those councils that have been under such financial pressure have sometimes moved too quickly, I think, to remove the back office functions, the statutory responsibilities, um, the controls that could have prevented maybe commercial investments, but may have prevented the breakdown in relationships, um, the weakness in performance management systems. So I, I think there's genuinely something about back office core stuff having been removed that could have been a break on some poor behaviours, whether it's commercial behaviours or actually the decline in service quality. And again, I would say you go back in history and think, actually, if you've got a really effective leader working with a really competent chief exec, you've got good scrutiny uh, in place, actually councils can fly. I mean, when that breaks down and you don't have a system to support management of disagreement or tensions, I mean, things can go awry quickly, actually. So I think for me, Mm. it's capability, it's good governance and weakness in relationships can really topple places over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And Graeme, does those diagnoses ring true for Nottingham's experience or experience of other councils that you've been working with? Almost hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm just going to add one dimension. I think there's been a bigger appetite for risk and what that does um, because you're trying to get out of your your financial problems by um, through commercial means, it attracts a lot of people who are a bit gung-ho. And once you get that culture in there, it's very difficult to break. So, you know, um, and particularly with the strong leader model, it becomes very, very difficult. The second thing is, I think you there's a lot of councils reluctant to take really, really hard decisions, um, and therefore they always hope that something better will turn up. So the Corba approach. Um, which I think possibly happened in Northamptonshire. I don't know. I wasn't that close to Northamptonshire. The third thing, which I want really want to add, is the failure of checks and balances within councils. The problem we used to have the audit commission, and it was somewhere where whistleblowers could go. I mean, I've had this experience myself, right, personally. Right. We've no longer got the audit commission. You've got an external auditor. And what I've always said about external auditors, they watch the car crash and then do a report on it. Um, There was no intervention while it's happening. Um, And the other problem you've got is that the monitoring officer um, often reports to the 151 officer. And often the one, and we always assume that one, the 151 officer is above reproach. Now, I've known a lot of 151 officers who are not above reproach. Um, and therefore, there's no check and balance on the 151 officer or the chief executive, right? because they're, they're all part of the, of the hierarchy. So, and, and so you've got no external balance, uh, check and balance, and the internal checks and balances are very reluctant to go into operation, to crank into operation. Yeah. So, so pre-austerity, would it have been more common for the monitoring officer to report separately to the to chief executive rather than perhaps now you've got this sort of corporate director of resources role that has monitoring officer going into it? 
yeah it's interesting and, and Paul I mean you, you work with a lot of councils what that that sort of cultural point that Graham raised is that important in in the work you do I think culture is, is a massive importance in councils and I think there's in addition to all of those things that have been mentioned I think there's a a general skills and capabilities um, issue in councils that actually the diversity of you know good you know middle managers coming through into senior leadership that have got diverse experience across the board is is lacking because the sector has had it very difficult for a long period of time I, I agree with a number of areas and one, one of the areas that um, Joe mentioned as well was around the back office functions and I think we have got a lot of knee-jerk reactions to problems and thinking that we can transform in different ways without really thinking about the consequences of removing a particular function or a particular capability or actually then just reskilling our staff in things that might need to change as a result of the fact that we're now operating in 2023 it's very different um the other point i think um tony made at the beginning around resilience i think we've got poor resilience to shock and we've had a couple of major shocks um and that is really difficult because we did put a lot of time into thinking about advance of Brexit stroke COVID. Um, and then when you then have financial investments that then become unsafe because actually the market and the economy, the economy is volatile, that becomes a really big problem. And I think there's one thing that I would add into the kind of investment approach and which has been, I think has been has been forced upon councils by just the lack of consistent and you know and and understandable forward planning in terms of their finances. I think that is that's left them in a situation where they've felt it's conflated whether they're investing to return on that investment or investing to generate income through business rates improve economic growth in a local area and if you conflate the two that's really problematic because actually you're looking to say okay we're going to try and you've got to boost the economy by regeneration or whatever the case may be that will boost taxes that will boost businesses improve the local economy but if you're also doing that for in, in you know investment as well as a commercial investment, I think you've got to be really clear about which you're actually doing that for. Um, and and I don't think and I agree. I don't think there's a skill sets within councils to be able to do that. And actually, you know, there is you know there'll be a wider point we can talk about transformation and where we sit in 2023. But I think that there needs to be a bit of a rethink about what we want to be as councils, what our role is going to be, and what our partners are going to do in that space, and how we work together to do that. And in the future so really interesting times but yeah I worry that there's probably some more hiccups along the road on the back of the last couple of years. Yeah absolutely and so perhaps we move on to talk a little bit about how how the process works Um, but Joanna you wanted to come in. And it was just maybe to sort of conclude that point I mean I think there are some great company structures that are working to deliver really good products particularly say in relation to social care but I think if you're sitting in the private sector and you are thinking about growing your business you have a completely different mindset about how you uh, invest you know if you're running a business you you would be constantly thinking every day about your P&L you, you, you would be thinking about how cash is working every day and would have people on the board that really understood how to think commercially and sort of move quickly as the markets change. And I suppose my observation looking across many sets of company structures operating in the public sector at the moment, you know, we have, we just don't have the right sort of risk appetite 
site, we don't have, I think, people with the right skills leading some of those companies. And I think history will say that uh, too many complex structures were put in place without the transparency, actually, for, you know, other officers, members, in councils to understand actually what the purpose of the company was and to have them running. So you'll see still lots of companies uh, in local government lands, you know, with board members that are, you know, great on social care, but actually you're expecting to run a commercial property portfolio. I mean, it's so I think change is necessary and inevitably will have to come uh, on that basis. But so th there's nothing in your view that w that prevents councils running successful companies but they just need to get the right people yeah, in. And, I, and I think it's that. like, what's the purpose? Um, is it about investment for the council? Is it about, you know, broader aims? If those two are coming together, you know, you need a model, you need advisors, you need the capability to be able to get that, you know, investment to work consistently and, you know, manage the highs and lows of any sort of commercial portfolio. Um, but it is about, I think, in the public sector, having to do that incredibly transparently and openly with company structures that are lawful. Yeah. Um, Graeme, you wanted to come in on that. And I know Nottingham did get involved in an energy company, which I think auditors were sort of yeah. quite critical of the, the approach and how mm. that was was managed. Yeah, I mean, one of the major problems with the energy company is that they, they made the, the cardinal error of chasing turnover. As, and without looking at unit cost. But the, my only rebalancing point, and I absolutely agree with Joanna about all the points she made that what you need, I, it's just I've come across a number of private companies that are just as appalling, right? Um, you know, they, they are not the paragons of virtue. Um, they've got, they make the same mistakes very often, but I think there is that much more of a tendency. You, you know, that point about cash, and not not keeping an eye on the cash flow and not keeping an eye on the unit costs right and the margins you know and the rate of return you know you have, to, you have to keep reminding them all the time what's your rate of return when they were coming back saying oh well we've just gone we've got another contract right not terribly interested what's the rate of return in your contract anyway i'll leave that i'll leave that there yeah thank you and tony <laughs> Just a couple of observations, if I might, Sarah, on the back of, um, of, of all of that. I mean, Joe's absolutely right. There are some uh, local authorities that when they've, they've decided to go down the, the road of setting up a company, they've known why they wanted to do it, they've structured it properly, they've got the right advice, they've got the skills in place, they've put the proper governance arrangements in place, and therefore it is sound. What you tend to find with all the, the authorities that have got themselves into intervention is they just haven't done all those things. They've seen something which appears to be a holy grail, which allows them to do things that they couldn't do as a local authority and thought and, and just simply grabbed it um and um it, that's about lack of understanding it's about not having the skill set in the local authority and i think it's about having an attitude towards risk which is slightly odd uh, shall we say uh, at best um I, I must confess when i'm looking um, whenever i've been asked to look at an authority that is in difficulty uh, one of the first things you hear is it's got a range of companies that's probably the first place you go to look for uh, for areas of concern because you just know that's not going to be that's not going to be right uh, and can i just pick up one of the points that graham mentioned as well earlier um when he's talking about the statutory officers and the um the, the checks and balances and the control environment um in local authorities um, those statutory officer roles were specified back in i think 1989 um, they were designed for a purpose at the time 
um, all of which we understood at the time. I think things have moved on. Um, they may well be the same, the, the right roles to have, but I think the relationship between the three of them is is uh, is not fully developed in, in a way in which it could and which would be beneficial to the way in which local authorities control things like risk. I think having a that those three roles um, re-examined with a view to how each hold the other to account or how each can operate with the consent and knowledge of the others rather than without it would be beneficial. And I, I mean, I think I think the interesting point there is that if you are a company director and it's been deemed that you've been unfit to fulfil that role, you've allowed a company, say, to trade um, inappropriately, then you are barred. So it would be interesting sort of to debate how that model could or should work in a different sector not saying it mm. should but i mean it's just what are the consequences for failure for those offering advice to um elected members so yeah, there's, i there's, agree with there's been a lot on this in the health service hasn't there sort of post the mid staffordshire inquiry a lot about you know do managers need to be fit and proper people and a sort of a fit and proper person's test and the idea of stopping people being able to pop up somewhere else but um yeah I mean, it's a provocation, but I'm with Tony about whether that there is a, a need to step back from the sort of definition of the roles of statutory officers in this new sort of complicated world. I yeah. Think. So, OK, Graham, quickly and then Paul. And then very quickly. Yeah, very quickly. Um, what I would say is that having dealt with a number of junior staff who wanted to whistleblow and being very reluctant to do so because the internal hierarchies I think you need somebody external you can go to with 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 some clout. At the moment, the people you've external have not got the clout. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Paul? Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, there's so much to sort of discuss in this area, but I think you're also talking about very big legacy organisations and you're thinking how, you know, you to operate those in today's society to then say okay now you've got to change the way fundamentally how you're doing something you've got to set out you still that is a very very difficult job to do without having to really rethink how you think about the purpose of the organizations what you're delivering and especially with the with you know these are huge demand they're big demand vehicles right and we're just seeing increasing demand so it's not like you've got any time or space to think about how you you know reshape or reimagine how you do your you do deliver your councils it's a, it's a real big I think it's a big ask to say we need to change this, change this completely from something somebody could somebody able to do that. I think it has to be a kind of organic way of changing that bit by bit rather than this wholesale approach. I just think it doesn't really work. Tony, I come to you and on this question of the role of commissioners and if it's a system that works. So you said sort of if you're called in, the one of the first things you look at is all oh, the, the company structure. So what else happens day one? Your commissioner, you you arrive at a struggling council oh i think i that's horses for courses um i think sarah for for a start it depends on the circumstances upon which you arrive um often it will be on the back of a, an inspection a best value inspection in which case you've got a, a piece of research which tells you where the problems lie um, and you'll have given some thought in advance as to how you want to set up to address those in other circumstances you may be pitched in a very short notice and you've got to find out for yourself where the problems lie I mean, ultimately um and I think the, the department is starting to be clearer about this. I think when you go in, you need to know what success will look like so that you can set up from the start to achieve that for when you come out. And that's about having your, your exit strategy. Now, no, no plan 
the, the, the old military maxim is no no plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, but you have to have a plan, I think, um, so that you can adapt it as you go along. Um, so it, it is horses for courses, and it depends what the problem is. Uh, but but the, you, know, you look at all of the interventions, the the characteristics of failure actually all live in a, a, a number of, of, of very simple areas. They may be played out in different ways to different degrees in different local authorities, but it is about things like the governance arrangements, like the quality of leadership, the exercise of that leadership, um, the control, the financial controls. It's, it's relatively common, but it, but it will vary from, um, from individual instance to instance. One of the things that is probably most interesting is the degree to which authorities that get into trouble are aware of themselves, um, and who who is aware? Um, some some councils get themselves into trouble and are uh, bemused by what has happened because they were ignorant of the failings that they were making. Some have got into trouble who knew very well what failings they were making and tried to hide them. Yeah, and I think it's sort of been put to me before that by the time you get to the point of an intervention and commissioners, there will have been lots of sort of softer, probably approaches from within the sector you know people know it was wasn't a surprise to anybody when Northamptonshire issued a section 114 notice you know LGC had been writing that it was likely and on the cards for probably a year or more you know and similar with Croydon you know is is there something about it's those councils that aren't open to some sort of behind the scenes advice and course correcting that then go on to to need the full intervention and um, Paul did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it kind of reverts to our previous discussion around the foundations, having strong foundations. And I just wonder whether, I mean, I'm noting some of the recent reports from some of the commissioners, certainly around in Thowrock, where the quality of like officer reports was very, very variable in terms of the data and whether you you can't just throw that out of the officer's feet necessarily. But I think that there are some foundations there that going into an organisation, how their underpinning organization works how they how good they are with their data how effective they understand the data that they have how well they work across those big heavy organizational silos especially those that are costing quite a lot of money the big social care ones education and how they can then report accurately to provide accurate reports to scrutiny to senior leadership i think is really important it's like you can't build good new stuff on really poor foundations without it all breaking. So I think understanding that level of organisational, you know, um, the organisation underneath it, I think is really, really important. I'm not sure how many councils really look at that as effectively as they should. Yeah, sure. And Joanna, what, what's your take on, you know, is there, having gone in, into Surrey when it was, it was in difficulty and um, managed to turn it around and pull it back? I mean, what, what are the actions you can take to prevent the council kind of getting to that point of of having the commissioners being sent in? I mean, I I suppose my ambition for the sector is to have a, you know, to, to do the prevention bit. We talk about prevention every single day, don't we? And preventing an intervention would be much stronger. I mean, I, I think there are signs and signals that councils are getting into trouble and I think some of those are hard measures you know if you've got you know inadequate children's services you know if you can see that you've got sinking reserves you know there are some big sort of signs but I think there 
there are sort of softer ones that you can also sort of touch and feel in an organization which is about the sort of the culture so um you know if i mean boringly you know if there really isn't a robust sort of strategy if there aren't clear priorities you know if there isn't you know a clear forward plan so that councils know the decisions that they're going to take i mean if you can sort of judge that actually there isn't financial reporting in the public domain if you can see actually there isn't an audit plan or if you know there are only two or three audits emerging every year you know if there's no risk strategy all of these things i think are, are signals um that you can spot and i i suppose for me it's just how should we be working across the sector um to understand those soft signs and signals as well as some of the hard ones but just be sort of bolder with each other about when we do know i think lots of people did know there was a problem um in northamptonshire that was brewing um it was i think obvious in slough that something was happening they had a massive program i think to to re restructure and so many roles were taken out i mean those could have told um, a picture but at the end of the day this is about sort of human beings feeling empowered to be able to uh, recognize there is a problem they're going to do something about it and that has to sit I think with the leader and the chief exec and the wider cabinet and they have to own maybe a sense that things aren't going in the right direction and feel strong enough to be able to talk about it and ask for help and that's really really difficult isn't it for us as human beings sometimes it's hard isn't it when we think we need some support it's tricky so yeah. this this is about some structure and process, but this is about culture and human beings feeling that, you know, they've got to the edge and who's going to help them. Yeah, I think interesting you mentioned the leader and chief executives owning it, because I think Slough is probably the only one of the current round of interventions where, well, the chief exec went, but the leader politicians are still in place. I think everyone else has had a change. Do you think, is it is it always necessary to to change the political and officer leadership to move forward? Jana or Tony, I wonder what you think on that. Then I'll come to Graham. Well, I think as horses for courses, it depends, yeah, on the, it depends on the issue, whether the chief exec or the leader are. I mean, it's common that they are part of the problem and that the consequences of that you've just spelled out, Sarah. Um, but not always. And it depends how long they've been there, what their role was, what their involvement, what they knew. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's often the case. Um, I, I think, well, I mean, Graham's got his hand up, so let him let him comment. <laughs> yeah, Graham. Yeah, um, this. I mean, I, I did have some dealings with Slough, and you could smell what was going to happen. Actually, um, uh, but that's by the by. It's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is if I've got an issue with commission, the commissioning I've, I've seen to date is that it tends to spend too much time on process rather than on the people. And in the end, and I'm, I'm picking up Joanna's point, culture is determined not by process. Um, it's by people. I think it's Bismarck said that I can make a very poor system work with good people. I can't make um, I can't make a good system work with poor people. And I don't think that commissioning. I think commission the commissioners in is a good thing in many respects because otherwise you wouldn't get a change. Right. It acts, it acts as a way of getting rid of people. But thereafter, I think it then resorts far too much um, to, to process and think it can sort the process out. 
And I've got to say the most successful, I won't quote, I'm trying not to quote councils that much, but the most successful case I've seen is when um, by possibly by coincidence, you had a good chief exec, a good 151 officer and a good leader who all emerged from the from the debris. Um, and I say some of it's coincidental. And in the, as a consequence of that, um, you know, it, it sorted itself out. They also had a sense of direction. And part of the other problem with commissioners is they will come in with a load of impositions and, and probably rightly so, and most of them will be correct. But what it then tends to do sometimes, sometimes paralyzes the rest of the council in taking and in, in going forward on policy because it's so it's so wrapped up in trying to respond to the commissioners. So in a sense, it almost disempowers. So those two issues, I think, are quite important to try and, to try and address. Commissioners, I think, need to be f spend um, more time, some commissioners, on making judgments about the quality of the people that, that remain, um, who are in charge. And that would save a hell of a lot of energy going into trying to sort the processes out for them. I finish. Yes, because commissioners, uh, when they're sent in, they basically take on responsibility for the decisions of the political executive. I think is that that's, that's correct. Um, yeah. Tony, do you want to come back on, yeah, on Graham's challenges there around the role yeah, of the commissioner? I'm going to largely uh, largely agree with him, even though I might be one of those commissioners that he's um, that he's uh, having a go at. Um, <laughs> no, Joe might be another. People Joe quite liked another. you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, the, the, it, you, but he's absolutely right in that you've got to use what's there to best effect. And what you do tend to find um, is that people... Um, have been generally, staff in particular, generally outraged, and sometimes members, um, at what's been done in their name and on their on their behalf, and to them, and to their careers, and to their reputations, and so forth. And that there is a, a, a well of enthusiasm for wanting to be part of getting out of that. There's lots of other things going on as well. Um, I, I don't necessarily recognise the process point he's making. If I can use the Northamptonshire example, um, so as commissioners, we went in there with a whole raft of powers, you know, things taken. I mean, it's very odd, isn't it? You're an ex-chief exec. Um, uh, you spend so much of your time trying to get your officers not to get into the place where members should be. And then somebody puts you into a job where all of the responsibilities you're given are once taken away from members. You haven't got any officer powers at all. It, it's quite unusual. But in, in Northamptonshire, um, we arrived with a whole bunch of of, of abilities to do things. They're called directions, and you issue directions, so you can issue directions. Uh, and certainly in other interventions, I know that has happened at scale because it's been necessary in order to overcome the problems. In Northamptonshire, we had the power to do that. We never issued a single direction in the three years we were there. Because precisely what we, we did, precisely what Graham has suggested should happen, which was identify what did work, what was quality, what had ability, in members and officers and used that as the vehicle to get the authority out of the difficulties that it got itself into. Now, that sounds wonderful, and I'm not pretending for a second that can happen everywhere. It's about the disposition of the individuals, particularly the key ones that you find. Um, but I don't think you should resort to process. I mean, there are issues of process which you have to do because, you know, if you, usually process has failed. Therefore, putting process back to be uh, operated properly is one of, the, one of your key tasks. Um, so you do get locked into it. But I entirely agree with them that if you've got good people, um, you flog you flog that. I'm afraid you you know you you make the good people uh, your ambassadors for for success and for recovery. Yeah, sure, Paul. Yeah, I think the 
I'm really interested by the, how many times the word people um, and humans have come up actually in this conversation across the board. And, and I wonder, you know, when Graham and, and Tony are in organisations, we've already failed in, in terms of the people because they're in there already. And I think that I wonder whether there is a real problem. Again, it comes down to kind of maybe capabilities and capacity within the sector um, and skills within the sector. But in terms of senior teams, whether we all we don't have that right balance of risk, reward and challenge within our senior leadership teams that can a feel comfortable with challenging outside of that group or we're challenging that group within within their own teams or have very very similar terms of reference so actually those decisions are made without any any kind of diversity in thinking and i think that that is you know that just goes comes back to this kind of succession point that i feel that we've kind of really struggling in local government i really you know i haven't been in actually in working in local government for about a couple of years now but I really felt that it was problematic in terms of people, good people going, I can't see myself going through the process to be in those senior teams. I'm going to come out of the sector before then because you know, it's, it's, and you have this recirculation of people. So if you haven't got senior teams in place who feel confident and comfortable to challenge each other and have the experience to see different problems arising from different areas of the, of the business, then I think that you, you're, you've already set up to have a team that's going to go in one direction um, and might find it difficult to be able to even understand if there's something going wrong, spot the spot, spot the soft signs, or actually do anything about the soft signs and feel confident to be able to change that or make a make a statement or challenge it. Yeah. And you think those good people are being deterred from the big jobs because what they look too hard or that they don't feel that they'd be supported in them? Or what do you think it is that's that's causing that. I didn't, well, in, my, in my experience, I think that there's also a model of of how uh, how a local government, you know, and this is just my personal experience, um, how somebody has to be to be a senior officer in local government. I think that's okay. I think there's a model of that how that is, and I think that that doesn't necessarily translate to how we need to deliver local government in 2023 because it operates in a completely different context than it does 20 years ago. I think you need a balance a balance of experience, good experience, and good you know, good, solid experience in local government. But I don't think that there's one kind of model kind of person. And I, I feel sometimes we always look for this kind of model of a traditional kind of person who, who can hold and steady a ship and is able to do that, which is really good. But you also need, you need challenge and other experience in there to be able to have a balanced approach to a leadership team. And then, you know, back to the commercial point, commercial businesses have that good, successful ones do anyway. Um, you know, there are plenty of private businesses who are, equally as poor in that area as 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 graham said yeah yeah and graham we are fast running out of time and great i wanted to ask you a bit about your experience of an improvement board which is as we were saying before you know it's not the the full fat send commissioners in and strip the council of its powers but how does it operate how does it compare um it's light it's obviously it's light to touch um there's an element of it which I think because it's light to touch, it's harder for it to have, a, have an impact. And I can see some, I, I actually a bit reluctant to go into too much detail about my own council. All right. Um, if, do you mind if I sort of switch to some another angle? All right. Just for a <laughs> okay. minute. Okay. Because um, I really don't want to get into deep water. Um, 
I'm the only councillor here, and I want to make a bit of a plea for the role of councillors right in in this process. And what com, what happens when commissioners come in? It opens a Pandora's box, right? And in that Pandora's box, you've got a change of attitude of officers. You've got the opposition who will be enjoying the enjoying the moment, right? Um, you've got the media who will be enjoying the moment, and most of the councillors are not actually being responsible for all this. And then you've probably got a new leader in place, the chances are. And what I've had from a couple of leaders I've spoken to, in fact, a number of leaders I've spoken to, is they felt that the commissioners were visiting the sins of the forefathers on them. Right? So they weren't seen as sort of people you know, with clean sheets. I've had this a couple of times. There were people who, who share the guilt, even though they may not have had it. And what that does is, is make it that much more, the relationship that much, much more difficult. And where I found that it's worked really worked much better is where the commissioners have understood it's a new councillor and it's new count and there's not they have not necessarily blamed the councillors. Now the other phenomenon I found is that um, very often the officers right, will start decide that this is their opportunity um, to take more control. Right. It's there. It's, it's, it's like now the cat's away, the mice are going to play for a bit. And so that also causes some tension. Right. We're going to pull back because the councillors are no longer in charge. I noticed Joanna nodding and I appreciate that as, as that you've, you've, you've noted that. And then the final point is about the poor leader who takes over. Right. That leader has still got no um, responsibility without power. So the media is still making responsible. And he's got he's got to defend it all, um, or she's got to defend it all. In many cases, um, the um, the members will be very unhappy. All right, and they expect them to defend the members against these these commissioners who are overseeing. And the, you know, and the the officers will will probably uh, not give them the credit give them the credit they they should be having. So they're in the middle of all this, right? Um, and the best way, no, the systems are. I mean, it's almost a truism. The systems I think have worked well is where the commissioners have actually not been top down. They've been very collaborative. They've been very supportive, and they've understood some of those some of those problems. Um, and that so that's my plea for the councillors um, lost in all this sort of morass of complexity um, they've got responsibility without power um, and they've got the, and they've been blamed for things very often they weren't responsible for yeah thank you that oh. brings us back to one of the points Tony made at the start around scrutiny perhaps and the the executive model and yeah is is actually a sign that you're running into trouble is if you haven't got your backbenchers kind of engaged and active yeah. and yeah. you know yeah. involved yeah. in policy making yeah um joanna you wanted to come in and then we better go to some final thoughts i think i was just gonna sort of think through you know how interventions end because for the mm. reasons that we've talked about um i think it's really important that commissioners sort of hold back the powers. I think it's almost a failure if commissioners have had to use the powers. It should be, I think, a period of um, 
dialogue and consensus building and you know that's the way I think you're more likely to get improvement and especially in a council that's got a whole bunch of new councillors or a new leader you know you need to build you know their their presence mm. and sort of power yes. as it, it it feels a pretty bleak place for them but having them in the reserves is you know interesting you know for me it the debate is you know how how what, what are you testing as you bring to cause an intervention to end you know is it the culture or is it systems and process and I think for me you know com- councils will continue on an improvement journey if some of the boring processes and some of the boring systems that we do need are in place and there's good leadership but it is the test of culture in a way that staff begin to feel that actually they can do their jobs properly they've got the tools they need there's enough of them um you know it's the culture that like values there being some performance reporting and it's the culture that means that people can have a disagreement you know but there is consensus about you know what the end game will be but you know for me interventions like this cannot last for a long period of time it's sort of anti-democratic isn't it so it's how can you move the culture on so quickly and be able to test it um to enable the move I think anyway yeah and I think that's where the debate there's a lot of interventions and a lot of them need to finish but it's also I think useful to reflect on democracy because I think many of us were interested in the Tower Hamlets intervention that was run a few years ago which was really significant and high profile then it was um, a dominant one Mm. you know a number of complex challenges flowed from that you know the mayor um, was stepped away or was removed but now he's back you know and that's democracy for you isn't it so it's just seeing how cycles of change happen and you know we continue to support you know that council um to be a good council now that it yeah. doesn't have a chief exec either at the moment tricky yeah. yeah absolutely I think we could probably do a whole other podcast on how you bring about culture change and um yeah so yeah, yeah. but I'm going to come to you then Tony to finish on that question of from your point of view when should an intervention end how do you know as a commissioner that your your work is done no, I, I, well, the simple answer is as soon as possible, but for all the reasons John has just, just described, you know, this isn't the best democratic model. Um, you, you, we don't need to be doing this. We don't want to be doing this. We want to get out as quickly as possible. Uh, I think that's about being comfortable that the council has the wherewithal to not actually necessarily have arrived at the right place, but is on that trajectory and that, it, and that it's unshakable. Um, it is difficult, I think, for, for government. Um, they don't like intervention. I mean, that may not seem to be the case given the number going on, but I don't think government want to do this at all for all sorts of very good reasons. Um, um, so, so I think they're quite keen to get out of them. But I, I think also there is a, a concern that if you leave too early and things aren't fixed, then you've got to go back in. And that is the worst possible uh, scenario. So I think it's a matter of judgment. I think it is for commissioners or the, the panel, the board, whatever it is to be, to be very reflective of, do we need to be here? And if we don't, then we really should be thinking about going and making that recommendation to the Secretary of State. Uh, I did say earlier on about being trying to be clear about what, what a, an exit would look like, when, what success looks like, and therefore when it's achieved, uh, we're off. Uh, and I think that's a good discipline. Uh, but the premise should always be, we, we should only be here if we need to be here. And if we don't, 
we really need to be making the recommendation to go because local government does need and wants to stand on its own two feet and possibly a subject for another podcast, Sarah. But how does local government stop interventions happening as a sector, you know, I think is is key. If the government don't yeah. want to be there, uh, and there are too many of these things, and there are, then I think the sector needs to have uh, more of a discussion amongst itself about what it can do to prevent this happening and picking up on all of those early warning signs in a way which is supportive of authorities. I'm not making any criticism here. I think there are plenty of people in the sector, the professional organisations, the LGA, all try to do this. But clearly, we have got an escalation in numbers at the minute. None of us want to see that. So I think there's a there's some work to be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just a quick show, sort of show of hands to finish then. Do we, do we think that we are going to actually see more intervention happening this year? Yes. Yeah. Vigorous nodding all round. So, yeah. Yeah. Paul, did you want to come in with a final word? I just wanted to make a point that hasn't been made. I, I really also worry that actually interventions, they actually make us as councils more risk averse to doing the things that we actually need to do. Um, because we've been we've taken risks in areas, and I say we in the collectiveness of in areas that are have been problematic, the big tickets, the investments, the commercial investments, we still need to understand that local government in its current format cannot stay still. It has to fundamentally change. The demand is always going to be increasing and our structures don't facilitate that. And it's a real problem if we use intervention as being something that then it stops us taking risks in areas that need to be explored um and i worry that that you know that that a financial model focus on on not taking risks is going to be problematic in actually um catalyzing change systems change that needs to happen at, at various levels within local government i think i think we probably need to leave it there i know people <laughs> will have um calls to get to and things so but thank you all for a really interesting and hopefully useful discussion and um yes some some topics that hopefully we could perhaps pick up in a future episode um lots to discuss here so thank you all thank you for listening and join us next time on the local authority thanks Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks all. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact. Transformation that matters.